So uh, this morning I was flipping through and looking at my Facebook memories and uh, July 3rd always has a lot of good memories because that's when we did a lot of our 4th of July family celebrations and uh, one of them was from a few years ago where we were always going to my uncle's house. He was the one who lived outside of town so we could shoot the good fireworks off at his house, not at you know, in town, but uh, we were experimenting, my brother and I, which we tended to do on the 4th of July a lot. Experiment and 4th of July probably doesn't go real well together or fireworks anyway, but uh, we were trying to set up multiple mortar tubes and shoot them all off at the same time. And when it works, it's really pretty. And when it doesn't, you're seeing how fast you can hit the ground. And uh, in this particular instance, actually, Jennifer was there with us too, and uh, we set several off and like the story goes, all but one went off, and then it fell over, and then it went off, and it shot out into a field and set the field on fire, and my picture I had on Facebook was of the fire, and it's Jennifer and I trying to stomp this fire out, and my brother, who's a firefighter, was nowhere to be seen. <clears throat> And so uh, I often refer to him as, as a hero, as a firefighter. In that moment, he was gone. He's like, well, I was trying to find a, a, some water to throw on it. I'm like, well, the house was a quarter of a mile away, uh, but, but thanks. So uh, glad that you're here. Glad that you are, are here with us this morning. Uh, my name is Kurt, and I'm excited to, to be here with you. We're starting a brand new series today called Name Dropper. Uh, you, you probably saw there on the video a moment ago. And, and over the next five weeks, what we're going to do with this is we're going to look at some of the names of God. Now, if you read through your Bible, if, if you've got an English translation and you, you read through your Bible, you probably aren't going to notice this because most often you're just going to see God or you might see Lord or, or something like that. But if you read it through in the original language... You read especially the Old Testament, you, you find and you discover that God actually has several different names that, that he is called or names that he goes by. And these aren't just names like my name is Kurt. Uh, th these are almost more like titles or descriptions. For example, I've got different names or titles that, that I have gone by in my life. To some uh, people, my, my name is Dad. To three people, actually, my name is Dad. To uh, some people, I am son. To some people, I once upon a time was mister or coach. Uh, to some people, I am pastor. To some people, I am other names, whatever. These, these names for these people who call me these things, it's a description more so than a, than, than a name. It's a description of what I do in their lives. And when we look at God, we look at these different names that we see. These are actually descriptions of a part of who he is. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to look at these different names, kind of break these down, how they not only describe him, but what it means to us today so that hopefully we can get a little more well-rounded perspective of who God is as we follow him. To look at today's name, we're actually going to look at a pretty famous story from the Bible that's found in the book of Daniel. If you've got a Bible and you want to turn to the book of Daniel, if you don't, we'll have it up here on the screens. It's a story that if you grew up in church, if you grew up in Sunday school, it's a story you no doubt heard, and, and even if you didn't, it's a story you probably heard, and if not, we'll, we'll, we'll tell it to you today. But to kind of set the scene for this, in Daniel chapter 1, we, we see uh, what's happening. And the first couple of verses actually give us a lot of perspective. Daniel is a book of prophecy, but at the same time, it's also a book that tells us some stories that were very important in the history of Israel. And in the first verse, we see that 
there was a king named Nebuchadnezzar. He's a king of a, a nation called Babylon that's the most godless society that has ever existed. And it says that in, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar and his army rolled into Jerusalem and they conquered it. But they didn't just conquer it. They actually took the Israelites captive. They took them back to Babylon with them. And the thought process behind this was we're not just going to conquer a nation and enslave these people because they might revolt. So we're going to take them from their homeland. And if we take them from a place they're not familiar with, and we put them into a place where the culture and the geography and the language is all foreign to them, then they're less likely to revolt. They're more likely to feel lost and hopeless, and that's exactly what they did. But it goes a step further because it says in verse 3, of chapter 1, that the king ordered Ashpenaz, the, king, uh, the, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Now, Think about this here for just a moment. Let's, let's do a little context. These are young men who have been raised and groomed for a very specific purpose. And it's easy to say, well, these poor rich kids, but let's, let's think about this for just a moment. They were privileged and they were, you know, in that elite society in their culture. But now they've been taken. They've been taken from a place where they've been groomed for a very specific role to lead this nation and put into slavery in another nation. They've been forced to change everything into this other nation. They've been put into a situation they didn't ask for, that they didn't do anything to deserve. And not only are they put there, but they're given different names. They're renamed. And among these young men are three that we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and we look at this story, and, and we kind of jump ahead in, in the book of Daniel, to chapter 3, we see where the story is going. Again, if you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know what's happening. If you don't, in chapter 3, what we see is Nebuchadnezzar builds an altar, builds an idol, a massive golden statue for himself. And he wants the people of Babylon to worship this idol and nothing else. And in fact, to enforce this, they actually create this massive furnace, and anybody who doesn't bow down to this altar and this idol is going to be thrown into this fire and killed. And that's kind of where our story picks up today. Because he tells them, if you worship any other god, you worship any other god than the one I give you, that's where you're going to go. See, there's only one problem with Nebuchadnezzar's plan, is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, among with a few others, but those three in particular, they don't worship just any other God. They worship a God named Yahweh. That's the first name that we're going to look at today. And I actually want to do something here real quick. I want you to say this name out loud with me. Ready? Yahweh. Now, here's a little, little fun facts here. If you go back to the days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what we just did wouldn't have happened. They did not say the name Yahweh out loud. That name had too much prestige, too much reverence. They wouldn't say it out loud. In fact, they barely even wrote it. 
fact, when you write it in Hebrew, it's four consonants, which Hebrew has only consonants, but they wouldn't even put the vowel markings on it because it, it, the name couldn't be said. They didn't want to pronounce it out loud. We take the Yahweh name from Hebrew and we transliterate it into English. It looks like this, just four letters uh, that, that are spelled out there. Um, the Y-H-W-H. But understand this about the name Yahweh. Yahweh held such a high prestige that not only would they not say it out loud, but only certain scribes were allowed to write the name down. And not only was it certain scribes, but before they would write the name Yahweh, because they considered themselves so unworthy, they would essentially give themselves a ceremonial bath, a ceremonial cleansing before they would write the name down. And then after they wrote the name, they would actually burn their clothes. They would get rid of everything that they took there because they were no longer worthy to wear those clothes. Because those clothes were used in the service of Yahweh. And that reverence for that name continues to us today. If you look in your Bible, if you've got an English translation, any major translation in the English, and you see the name Lord, and it's all capital letters, that's Yahweh. It's easy to read right past that. But we read that name that should grab your attention because Yahweh is not just any other name of God. It's the name that might kind of separate from some of the others. Yahweh can't even be fully defined. The best way we try to define it is with two words, I am. That's how God describes himself. That's how Yahweh describes himself. We see this in Exodus chapter 3 when uh, he is appearing in a burning bush to Moses and he's telling Moses to go back to Egypt and rescue his people from slavery. And Moses says in verse 13, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. We see Jesus refer to himself as this. Jesus calls himself, I am. That's the best description we can come up with for the name Yahweh. Because it's more than just I am. Yahweh means I was, I am, and I forever will be. You think about this name here. Because Yahweh describes a God that is ever-existing and self-existing. It describes a God that transcends time and place. A God that, that, that through everything ever, through him everything was created. That's why Paul writes in Romans 11 that for from him and through him and in him are all things. If you don't mind, I'd like to take a moment and just kind of reflect on this name before we kind of get into the rest of the message and take the name Yahweh, and I want to dive a little deeper with this if you'll let me. Get a little theological, a little philosophical on this if you'll let me here. Because I think, for me, this is how my mind processes. This is a name and a description of God that is hard for me to wrap my mind around. Because my mind is, is only so big and Yahweh is infinite. But think about this for a moment. Yahweh, I said it a moment ago, transcends time and space. And he transcends time and place. We have a, a finite time. All of us, our human bodies, we have a dedicated start and ending date to our human existence. And we are confined to one space at a time, one place at a time. Yahweh is not. And, and what's fascinating about this is that we have science to help us understand things about the universe. We have celestial bodies that are put in place to help us uh, have time. 
But time in and of itself doesn't actually exist. We have our watches, we have our phones, and probably for the first time really in human history, all of us that have any device are set to the exact same time. I can look down and see it's 9.39 right now. Okay, and if you look at your watch or your phone, you're going to see the same thing. It's all set and dictated, but that's, that's created, right? If I take all of that off and I go outside someplace, that time suddenly doesn't exist for me. I have to use the sun or the moon or the stars to determine the time of day, and I have to use maybe the, 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 the weather to determine the season, to determine the time of the year, right? All of those things were created by God for us to take a moment to live in. A moment to experience, a moment to be with one another, to experience some kind of existence. Before scientists discovered that everything in our universe revolves around something else, before they realized the earth revolves around the sun and our solar system revolves around the sun and our solar system is part of a galaxy that's part of billions of other galaxies that all, all, all rotate and, and revolve around one singular point in the universe, the Jewish people believed that at the middle was Yahweh, but also at the beginning and the end of all things was Yahweh. What's fascinating about that is when you read Revelation chapter 1, and God describes himself by saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Alpha and Omega, that's the beginning and the end. We would say it in our, our language as he is the A and he is the Z. He is at the first, he is at the end. And what's even more fascinating about that is when you go to Revelation chapter 22 and you read the final chapter in the Bible, and you read where God has wiped out this earth and established a new earth that's not separate from heaven anymore. You read that there will no longer be a moon and no longer be a sun because we won't need them anymore. Yahweh will be our source. There will be no day. There will be no night. There's no separation. Those celestial bodies that he put in place to give us time, the earth that spins, that determines our day, and that rotates around a sun to determine our year, and a moon that rotates around the earth to determine our months, those are no more. He will simply be, and we will exist with him. That's Yahweh. Yahweh was on the side of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were on Yahweh's side. And folks, that is exactly where we need to find ourselves as we walk with him. Because we're going to find times in our lives, we're going to find times with the world that we live in today, where we are up against the wall. We're going to find times, situations that are difficult, where we feel lost, or we're hurting, or we feel broken, or we just feel hopeless. Maybe you're in one right now. If not, you probably have been, and if not, you probably will be soon. That's kind of the human experience. Maybe you're in one of those right this moment. It's a spot you didn't choose, and it's a spot you really didn't even do anything to get, but you've got it anyway. They didn't do any decisions that led them to this moment, but yet here they are. And too often, that's where we find ourselves. Maybe for you, it's, a, it's an abusive situation. You've been abused physically or verbally or, or emotionally. Maybe it's a situation where you've been cheated by somebody else, a friend, a partner. Maybe it's, it, it's, it's a situation where you've just been told you're worthless, that nobody wants you, that you'll never amount to anything. Maybe you just feel unheard. 
or alone. Whatever the situation is, we get into these moments where we want to cry out to God for help. We need Yahweh to intervene, and he doesn't do it, at least not the way we expect and the way we want. And because we're not looking in the right direction, maybe we miss it when he actually does. In those moments, it's so easy for us to crater. It's so easy for us to fall apart. It's so easy for us to have our faith rattled and shaken and to come out of it broken and say, well, the world made me this way. If that's the case, and that's been you, I got some some good news for you today. Because we see from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego an incredibly powerful message. We see what they did and how they responded to the same situation. The Jewish people were in Babylon, and they were hopeless. They were lost. They even cried out to God wondering why he wasn't taking care of the situation. God, why don't you just wipe them out? Why don't you just pull us from here? And what we see from them is such a powerful and beautiful message. Because in in Daniel 3, it goes on to tell us that it came to the attention of Nebuchadnezzar that these three men were not bowing down to this idol that was put out there. And so he calls them to him and he gives them a chance to, to plead their case And basically threatens them, you're going into the fire if you don't respond the way I want you to. And what we see in this story are three kind of, I think, just easy, quick lessons about Yahweh from these three. Three lessons that we can put to play in our world, in our walk today. Here's the first one. It's already up here. We should place our faith in Yahweh alone. It's easy for us to want to put our faith in each other. It's easy for us to put our faith in ourselves. We have to understand every one of us is limited and every one of us is broken. What of our limits? Where are we broken? It's different for all of us. But you can only trust me and I can only trust you to the limit of our capabilities. We place our faith in Yahweh alone. After they've been threatened and they've been told what's going to happen to them, This is their response in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from your your majesty's hand. That's pretty bold. (laughs) That's a pretty bold statement. I wonder sometimes how we would reply. You know, we, we, have, we ask that theoretical question sometimes. If somebody had the gun to your head, well, you know, would you renounce your faith or would you stand firm? But let's take that a little lighter because we all want to answer that question with a yes. Let's ask, ask that question differently. If you were going to be rejected by everybody you know, would you keep your faith? If you were going to be rejected and walk away, be pushed away from, from a, a job, and that job, you don't have another one across the street you can just walk into. Your family's going to suffer because of it. Can you make that, that statement? Can you be as bold as they were here? Because when I read what it is they said, I also read what they don't say. I read how they don't reply. And I read what they don't do. Number one, they don't panic. They, they don't lose their minds here. They don't try to talk their way out of it. They don't threaten Nebuchadnezzar. They don't yell and scream because things aren't going their way. They don't talk about how unfair this is 
or how this world's moved so far away from God. They, they just reply, God's going to take care of us. Could we be so bold? What else do they not do? Well, this caught my attention. They don't insult their king, even though they disagree with him. They don't come up with names for him. They don't blast all over social media why he's so wrong. They even show him honor by calling him your majesty. They respect him in his spot, even though they know disagreeing with him is going to be costly for them. Even in the midst of this, they don't cry out demanding God do something. They simply say our faith is in him. Even in the midst of their greatest adversity they have ever seen, they put their faith in Yahweh alone, not knowing what's going to come next. They put their faith there anyway. I think they know a simple truth. I think they know something that we need to keep in mind here, that times of adversity are often times of opportunity. Again, they don't panic. I like to think as I read this that they're just as calm and cool and collected as they could be. I think they fully understand what God said through the psalmist when he said to be still and know that I am God, that he's got it taken care of, that he doesn't need us to reply in an aggressive manner. He just needs us to trust. And that is easier said than done. This is one of those things that when I stand here on this stage, I can preach it all day long. When I'm in that situation, it's a little harder to put to motion. If you're in the midst of a battle right now, trust him. Trust him. And trust him even though you don't know what's going to come next. That's the next lesson. How do we respond like they did? Simple. You be a person of faith, not presumption. Too often I think we have faith, but we have faith kind of in a certain way. Well, God, you're going to do this, and and this is how it's all going to play out. And, and I'm going to, man, I'm going to be there. Have you ever prayed that prayer? God, if you would just do this, I'll, I'll serve you forever. I'll give, in fact, I'll, I'll tithe even more. I won't miss a Sunday. We bargain with them. <laughs> they weren't people of presumption. They had no idea how this was going to turn out. They knew God was going to take care of them one way or the other. And we know this by the very next words out of their mouth. Look at verse 18 after they've been told that they're going to be thrown in, and they told Nebuchadnezzar that God will deliver us, look what they say, but even if he does not, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Those might be two of the biggest words in the Bible when it comes to us and our faith, because is that something that we can pray? Can you pray those two words, even if? Can you declare those two words, even if? Maybe you're in the midst of that right now. God, even if you don't heal my body. God, even if you don't get me out of this broken relationship. God, even if, even if I don't get this job. God, even if, can you pray that? See, I think we miss something when we don't pray even if. I think we miss something very important here because too often I think we're too busy praying that God would take care of the problem, that he would extinguish the fire, that he would wipe out our enemies. 
that he would get rid of all these situations. And we miss it because we're so focused on the obstacle that we miss God's right there in the midst of it with us. And that even if it doesn't go the way we want it to go, he's still there with us. And he's still going to lead and guide us through that. I think about this because I think about one of the most powerful prayers in the New Testament. When Peter and John have gone to the temple and they've healed a, 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 a beggar and, and healed a crippled beggar, that he's asking them for money and maybe you know the reply. They, they say, we don't have any silver and gold, but we have something better than that. And they heal him and they get persecuted by the Jewish leadership and dragged before the Sanhedrin and thrown in jail and ultimately released but threatened, don't do this anymore. That Jesus guy, he was a traitor. We got rid of him. Stop talking about him. Stop preaching in his name. This is your last warning. Next time it's going to get rough. And they go back to the home and to the house with the other believers. And they pray. And it says they prayed so much the house shook. The power of their prayer was so great. And you know what they prayed for? Get this. In Acts chapter 4, it says their prayer. Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with boldness. They don't pray for protection. They don't pray, God, take those evil people away. God, strip them of their power, discredit them, smash those evildoers. They don't pray that. They pray for courage. Think about this for a moment here, church. When's the last time that was your prayer? When's the last time you cried out to the almighty, all-powerful Yahweh and said, God, I don't care about protection. Give me the boldness to stare it down. I mean, right now, the last week and a half, we have seen hostility towards the church in our nation. It's probably only going to get worse. What's your prayer? God, take care of those evildoers? God, put a bubble around us, protect us? Or is it, you know what, give me the courage to face them no matter what happens. I had one of my professors in Bible college tell us, if the American church just prayed an even-if prayer, if they just prayed, give us that boldness, we would see such a radical revival all across this nation. But we pray for comfort. We pray for safety. And I don't mean to demean you if you pray those things because those are just our natural instincts. We want those things. God's not going to just smash our enemies for us. Why? Because he told us instead to go save them. Remember those commissions that Jesus gave us? When he told us to go into the world and make disciples, that's who he's talking about, are those people who would persecute us. Or when he said in Acts chapter 1, to be my witnesses and to take my word to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, that's who he's talking about. Or when he told us multiple times to... to Take the same mission he had to go seek and save the lost. That's who he's talking about. To go serve others. That's who he's talking about. To bring life to the full. That's who he's talking about. If we just prayed for boldness, if we just prayed even if, man, I, I wonder what our church would look like. I wonder what the church would look like. God may not respond the exact way you want him to, that doesn't mean he's not responding. That's our third lesson from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is that Yahweh delivers, but it's often not how we expect him to. What would have been the easy thing for God to do there? To just think the thought, and that furnace would have gone away. 
to think the thought and Nebuchadnezzar would have gone away. Or maybe just to think the thought and Babylon would have gone away. And the, the, the people from Judah would have never even been taken captive in the first place. But look what happens in the story. They are thrown in. And not only are they thrown in, it says that because of the way they replied to Nebuchadnezzar, he got so furious that he had them crank the heat of the fire up seven times hotter than normal. And it was so hot that when they bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they threw them in the fire, it said it was so hot that the men who threw them in actually were killed by the fire. And yet here's what happens once they're thrown in. Verse 24, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? And they replied, Certainly, your majesty. And he said, Look, I see four men walking around unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Babylon was the most godless society that ever existed. Their kings had rejected any notion of God, and yet Nebuchadnezzar recognizes who's walking in the fire with these three. And that not only are they walking around, they are completely unharmed. And I wonder what's going through his mind because earlier in the story, just a few minutes earlier, whenever he's making their threats, or his threat to them, before he gives them a chance to, to give their final peace, he tells them this in verse 15, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And now he sees four of them walking around. And so they extinguish the fire and they bring those three out. It says that their, their, their clothes weren't even singed. They didn't even smell like they had been burned. And not a hair on their head had been harmed. And they walk out the same as they had gone in. And he declares their God to be the one true God. And that anybody who speaks out against that God will get ripped apart and destroyed. And then he goes on to end the story in verse 29 by saying, No other God can save in this way. Even Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the power of God. It would have been easy for God to just snuff all of that out. It would have been easy for him to make them avoid the situation altogether. That would have missed the point. That would have missed the point of what was happening there. Because I think God had something that he needed to show. And it's a reminder that we need here today. That Yahweh is faithful. He's faithful even when we don't think he is. He's faithful even when he may not seem like it. And he's faithful even when we are not. He's there for us. Maybe you're going through a fire right now. Maybe you're, you're in the midst of one right now. And you want to know why you're in that. I, I've been there. And I don't know how many times I have demanded that God explain to me why I'm going through this. I do know how many times he's told me. <laughs> I can count it on zero fingers. And to be honest, it, it wouldn't have mattered even if he did. And looking back at some of the trials I've gone through, I still don't know why I went through some of them. I don't know why you're going through it. And I don't want to try to give you a trite answer, but I have a couple of thoughts here because I, I look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is just, just my thought on the matter. Why do we go through some of these fires? For a few reasons. One, because sometimes we need to grow in our faith. And like anything else, you can't grow if you don't get put to the test. I think, too, we go through them because we need to deepen our faith and get more deeply rooted in it. 
And it's like working out. If you want to be comfortable, you're not going to grow in, in, in your exercise and in your workout. You've got to stretch yourself and push yourself. But maybe, just maybe, maybe you're going through a trial because God knows you can handle it. And that one of these days, somebody's going to go through that same trial and they can't. And you're going to be able to walk through that with them and show them all along that right in the midst of the fire, he was right there with them the whole time. It's easy for us to get blinded by our storm and miss God. Think about Peter when he walked on water. He got out of the boat and he was walking towards Jesus in the midst of the storm. The waves and the, the, the wind and the storm was already there as he was walking. And so what happened? He took his eyes off of Jesus and he saw the storm around him and that's when he began to sink. The storms didn't just pop up once he was out there. But the moment his storm became bigger than his God, he started to sink. And the same thing can happen to us. Don't let the fire around you distract you and blind you to the God who is walking through that with you. Because we have a Lord. We have Yahweh who exists above all that and before all that and after all that and right in the midst of all that. So the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus the same way when he says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So just a challenge for you today. Something I want you to take, take with you today. If you're facing a fire right now, don't play the blame game. Don't play the victim card. Don't make it everybody else's fault. Just give it to God. Give it to God and trust God that he's there with you. Look for him in the midst of that fire with you. We're going to close this a bit differently today. I've asked the, the band to come and lead us in a song that's going to be our closing prayer. We'll do communion in just a little bit, so hold on to those. It's a song that you, you may know. If you know, I invite you to, to sing it with us. But in the middle of your fire, can you find him? He's there. It says in Hebrews, he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you. He's there in the midst of it with you. The question is, can we trust? Can we see that? Can we find that? When the heart is under fire Another way when the walls are closing in And when I look at the space between Where I used to be and this reckoning I know I will never be was another in the waters holding back the seas and should I ever need reminding of how I've been set free 
is a cross that bears the burden where another died for me. There is another in the fire. Is another in the fire. Oh. All my dead left for dead beneath the water. I'm no longer a slave to my sin anymore. And should I fall in the space between what remains of me? This Either way, I will bow to the things of this world. And I know I will never be alone. There's another in the fire standing next to me. There is another in the waters holding back the seas. And should I Thank you.
Tears of grace when the heart is undefined Another way when the walls are closing in And when I look at the space between Where I used to be and this reckoning I know I will never be at this time that we're going to go ahead and begin to take communion together. Before we do, can I pray? And let's bless the rest of of our time together today. God, as I think about what you did on the cross for us, it's a pretty compelling message of mercy. And God, I just pray that everybody here, Lord, gets a taste of what that looks like. As we take communion together, as we take the bread and the juice and how that represents your body and blood spilled out for us. God, we're just taking a moment to remember why we're here, not just in this place, but why we're here on this earth, what our purpose is where our identity lies. And how much freedom there is in knowing you. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.